0: Conspiracy Unlimited, with Richard Serrett.
1: On this episode, clues hidden in a stolen medieval painting, leading to Templar treasure and the race to prevent the Nazis from finding the Holy Grail.
2: Knowing that Hitler had his eye on the painting, took that one panel away so he would never get it. And sure enough, he came in later on and they rolled into Belgium and they took all the art they could, including that, but that one panel was missing. And so years later, when the monuments at the end of the war went back to, to Austria to recover all the stolen art, including this piece, he recovered the whole thing except for that one panel. And that one panel, that just judge's panel, is still missing
1: this podcast is brought to you by reverse speech radio a podcast committed to telling you the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth using the exact same technology as the cia they know because they trained them join hosts christian DeCadur and david john oates every week and hear never before heard reversals revealing the hidden truth Catch politicians lying. Climb inside the head of serial killers. Even hear EVPs played in reverse. Who's lying? Who's telling the truth? All will be revealed on Reverse Speech Radio. New episodes drop every Thursday. Find out more at reversespeech.ca. Listen and subscribe at reversespeechradio.libson.com.
0: Here's Richard Serrett.
1: Welcome to your Wednesday. Author, attorney Dave Brody is standing by to discuss his latest in his Templars in America series. Imagine the George Clooney, Matt Damon film The Monuments Men about a U.S. Army outfit with the mission to recover stolen art from the Nazis. Combine that movie with National Treasure, and the Da Vinci Code. And that'll give you an idea what Dave's latest Treasure Templari, Templars, Nazis, and the Holy Grail, is all about. Just a reminder, visit my website, strangeplanet.ca, and register your email, and you'll receive my free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum. And once you register, you'll also qualify for the monthly draw for free Strange Planet gear. strangeplanet.ca Historians Cameron Thorne and Amanda Spencer Gunn uncover a stolen painting, which the Nazis believed was a secret map to the Holy Grail and a lost treasure of the Knights Templar. Hitler planned to weaponize the Holy Grail and monetize the treasure as part of his campaign of world dominance. It's a work of fiction, but based on actual events. And it's just dynamite. And not surprising that all of the books in Dave's Templars in America series have been Kindle top 10 bestsellers. Dave is a Boston Globe best-selling fiction writer and a graduate of Tufts University and Georgetown Law School. He's a former director of the New England Antiquities Research Association and is an avid researcher in the subject of pre-Columbian exploration of America. He's frequently appeared as a guest expert on documentaries airing on History Channel, Travel Channel, PBS, and the Discovery Channel. Dave Brody, welcome back to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you?
2: I'm great. Thank you for having me again.
1: My pleasure. This is, is it the 10th book in the Templars in America series or the 9th? I've lost track.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think for a second myself it is the 9th. I'm working on the 10th now, but this is the 9th.
1: Ah, the 9th. All right. And... The, the, the protagonists, uh, well, let's talk about uh, Cameron Thorne. It's Cam and Amanda Thorne. But Cameron, uh, obviously the similarities between his character, he's, a, he's a, an historian, he's an attorney, uh, you are also an historian and an attorney. So the obvious question well, is, okay. is, it, is it based on, is Cameron loosely based or, t- or tightly based on, on you?
2: Cameron is a taller, smarter, better looking, more athletic, but dynamic version of myself. I suppose it's the best way to, to say it. But, you know, it's funny because people ask that question a lot. And I think anytime any writer uh, writes fiction, there's a bit uh, of autobiography in, in almost every character that, that they create. But Cameron, as you said, loosely based on me, uh, but also in many other ways, not me at all. So. His personality is a lot different than mine. He happens to uh, he happens to be diabetic, for example, which I'm not. But, um, yeah, I think that the, the, the loose comparison is a fair one.
1: Well, the other striking similarity here is that he's based in, in Westford, Massachusetts, and you spent some time, right. I don't know if you were born in Westford, but you, you kind of raised your family in, in Westford. and
2: Right, right. 20, we spent 20, 21 years there. I raised a family there. And that's sort of how I fell into all this thing because we're, we have a legend, which I think I talked about last time I was on your show, Richard—the mm-hmm. legend of the Westford Knight and Prince Henry Sinclair, exploration of America before Columbus—and and that's how I fell into all this this uh, this history and this Templar history and all that goes back to the the legend of the Westford Knight.
1: Right, right, and we'll we'll circle back uh, to that obviously, but let's let's begin. With this painting, the um, uh, it's considered perhaps the most important painting in history, the Ghent Altarpiece uh, by the Van Eyck brothers. Tell me about what does it look like. Describe it.
2: Yeah, and, and you, you said the most important painting in history. That's what NPR called it recently in an article that they did. Uh, it is a massive piece. It's, when you say altarpiece, it's the type of thing that that. That stands in front of the altar, so it, it, it has to be very large. It's comprised of of uh, eleven panels on the front and five on the back, uh, and these pieces so that they sort of fold in, almost like a um, uh, something you use in a, in a dressing room type thing to, to, for privacy. But each panel has its own its own painting on it, and the reason why it was so amazing when it was painted in the early 1400s, late 1420s, early 1430s, is that van Eyck's figured out a way to mix pigments with linseed oil and have this really amazing vibrancy that no painter had ever been able to come up with before. And in addition, they painted in incredible detail. So picture black and white television and then in one cell swoop going to high definition, full color. And that's really what this painting was. From black and white, not only the color, but all the way to high def. And when they painted this, when they first displayed it, People in Europe went crazy for it. And that's why NPR calls it the most important painting in history. It just it just changed so fundamentally the way art was done. Uh, but obviously, its importance goes beyond that. It was a very important religious painting. The Van Eycks were considered part of the Dutch masters. Um, and so the painting itself is amazing in, in and of itself. It was, uh, again, one of the most important paintings of its time. And then over the course of the centuries, also became the most stolen piece of artwork in world history. It's stolen six seven times, again, related to how important it is.
1: Right, and uh, I think as you point out um, in the book, that that painting, the recovery of that painting in post-war Austria was uh, portrayed in The Monuments Men with George Clooney right. and Matt Damon. So that that actually Matt happened. Damon and Murphy, yeah. Right. That, that painting was, right. in fact, recovered, or at least most of it, save one panel, right?
2: Right. So what happened was, in, 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 in during World War II, the Nazis stole a bunch of art, including this massive painting, the Ghent Altarpiece. But in 1934, before the war began, one particular panel called the Just Judges Panel in this painting, it was stolen, again, but years before the war began, that's the panel that many people Uh, people, (laughs) historians, experts, art experts, conspiracy theorists, whoever, many people believe that panel is a secret map to the Holy Grail and the lost Templar treasure. And that panel mysteriously disappeared in 1934, before the war. And one of the theories is that a group of Belgian uh, nationalists, knowing that Hitler had his eye on the painting, took that one panel away so he would never get it, and sure enough, he came in later on and they rolled into to Belgium and they, they tried to—they took all the art they could, including that, but that one panel was missing. And so years later, when the monuments that, at the end of the war went back to, to Austria to recover all the stolen art, including this piece, they recovered the whole thing except for that one panel. And that one panel, that Just Judge's panel, is still missing.
1: And, of course, the, the recovery of that, that panel and the pursuit of the uh, – or, or the, uh, the trail that leads to the treasure that supposedly is encoded in that panel become sort of the, the central theme of your latest uh, Treasure Templari, Templars, Nazis, right. and the Holy Grail. So let's just spend a few moments describing the content – uh, of the the just judges, what is it about the that the portrayal on that painting that might lead some to believe it's it's a coded um, map, if you will?
2: Yeah. So no one's really sure what it is about that particular panel that made Hitler, and it wasn't just Hitler, by the way, it was Himmler as well. Both of them were sort of obsessed with this this panel. In fact, it was a bit of a tug of war between the two Nazis as who to get to keep it. And, Hitler won that, but um, the, 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 this, the uh, painting itself, the Just Judges is sort of on the outside, one of the outer panels. All the panels look in at uh, a central panel called the Adoration of the Mystic Lamb, which is uh, really a picture of a lamb uh, being pierced by a lance and the lamb's blood flowing into a chalice. And, and, and it's sort of an obvious uh, metaphor the lamb being a symbol of Jesus and his blood flowing into the chalice. It, it's the Holy Grail. And so all the panels depict various biblical and political figures watching this scene. Why it is that the Just judge's panel was chosen by Hitler and Himmler as being the important clue or the important map, no one's ever really been able to figure that out. It may be that the placement of the panel, uh, it's on the far outside, and then one panel closer in is a panel that depicts the Knights Templar also on horseback watching the scene, and then the next one in is, is, is the adoration of the Mystic Land, the central panel. It may be that the, the judges are watching the Templars, who in turn are watching the Holy Grail being formed, and everyone not, many people consider the Templars to be the caretakers of the Grail, and so therefore perhaps the argument goes, the judges were watching the Templars because the Templars were going to be the custodians of the Holy Grail. Follow the Templars and you'll find the Templar treasure in the Holy Grail. And so that may be one of the theories as to why Hitler believed that particular panel was so
1: important. Now, I want to come back to Hitler and his obsession uh, with not only the Grail, but uh, also the Arma Christi and, uh, and and then Himmler and his belief that the, 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 the trail actually led to Atlantean uh, treasures or weaponry, if you will. But let me just talk about the Van Eyck brothers and this painting again from the 1400s, the inclusion of the Knights Templar uh, suddenly make that, I would think, that, that painting kind of radioactive and a little political, controversial, because they had been outlawed by the church a century earlier.
2: Richard, at some point, I like your, the term radioactive, because that's exactly why this is so intriguing. Uh, as you said, uh, over a hundred years earlier, the Templars in 1307 had been outlawed by the Church. They were considered persona non grata. They were, they were considered heretics. And for this, this, this amazing painting to be displayed, displayed in a cathedral, uh, St. Bobble's Cathedral, a Catholic cathedral, um, to be so prominently displayed, and also to include a depiction of the Knights of Christ, which are the successor order to the Knights Templar, that's, that's uh, I, I raise it, and, and odd, and as you said, potentially radioactive, um, but also is why uh, many experts look at it and say that's a clue. Okay, there must be a reason for the Templar's inclusion in this painting, otherwise, that doesn't seem to be an appropriate or uh, even an understandable inclusion.
1: So uh, let's just talk a little bit about why the Templars were outlawed uh, by the Church in, uh, I guess, around 1307. Uh, they they had been, uh, you know, charged with guarding the uh, the, the pilgrims who were, were traveling to the Holy Land. They were a very chivalric order. I would think at one time they were they were sort of uh, the they would have been looked on very favorably by the church. What 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 happened to to sour that relationship?
2: Um, that, That that question that you asked it's really it's really three separate questions. I like to think of it, but you know that's sort of given fuel to all nine of my novels in this series, the Templar in America series. But the questions I look at them as as A, B, and C. A What did the Templars discover when they went to Jerusalem the first time in early 1100s? As you said, they were there to guard pilgrims who were on the the road to the Holy Land to view the sacred sites. But something they discovered, something they found, almost immediately made them incredibly wealthy and incredibly powerful. So what was it that they first found in Jerusalem when they were digging, probably under the Temple of Solomon? Secondly, 200 years later, what did they do? after being the army of the Church for 200 years, what did they do to get themselves outlawed and declared heretics on Friday the 13th of October, 1307? What, you know, what happened to change that relationship? One of the possible theories is that they discovered things in Jerusalem that were contrary to the traditional teachings of the Church, and at some point, they sort of butted heads. The Church said, we, we, you know, we don't like that you know this, we definitely don't like the idea that you're going to tell people about it. The top said, well, yeah, you may not like it, but it's the truth, and we don't like the version of Christianity that you're teaching. And so there was a, a bit of a butting in the heads there. But then the third thing, when, when the Church outlawed the Templars, there were religious reasons, but there were also, uh, from, the, from the perspective of the King of France, Philip uh, Philip Babel, who owed them a ton of money, there were economic reasons. The King of France wanted the Templar treasure, and when, when the treasury of the Templars was raided on Friday the 13th of October, it was found to be empty. So the third question is, where, what was the Templar treasure, and where did it go? And I think that relates back to the first two questions. What did they discover in the early 1100s, and what was it that got them outlawed? The third part of that is, did they have a treasure? Yes. What was it? Hmm. It could be just economic, but it could be religious artifacts. It could be the Holy Grail. It could be the Ark of the Covenant. It could be ancient knowledge. And then where did it end up? So all these sort of play into that whole mystery. Um, And whenever you talk about the Templars, you have to think about those three different things, all of which were incredibly important. But they go into that one question, which is, you know, they're a secret society. What is it we don't know about them? It probably is a lot more than what we do.
1: Right. Um, A little sidestep here. I'm just wondering also, uh, you mentioned financial reasons and the, the, the gold that the Templars accumulated. Did that... Uh, didn't that allow them to really create the, the modern banking system as we know it today?
2: Yes, it did. They were the first they were the first bankers. Uh, what they were able to do, traveling back then and during medieval times was incredibly dangerous. So they actually created sort of a, um, a system whereby you deposit your money, say, in Paris before your journey, and you're given a, a coded shit and you turn that shit in when you arrive, say, in Jerusalem, Many, many months later, and you received your money back. It's almost like a traveler's check. And that way, travelers didn't have to actually have their gold and their valuables on them. But that really was the first part of the banking system. And then later, they became uh, lenders and financiers, a a large multinational corporation, uh, which is one of the reasons why they became incredibly powerful, incredibly wealthy. But the other part of that was that um, many noblemen, especially in France, but all over Europe, Noblemen, when they hit a certain age after they had their children, wanted to have their souls saved, and therefore would would join the order and donate their their land and their holdings to the order, and so the, 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 that was sort of the seed money for the order, and then and then from there they did their banking and their financing and 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 and, and leverage that into even greater wealth, but the Templars were probably wealthier than almost any monarch in Europe during that 200
1: year period. Ah, so there's a, certainly another motive. if they could rival the uh, the power and the wealth of the monarchs, they would certainly be an existential threat to the uh, yes. the order. Um, and, and as you point out, uh, and again, this is a, a central theme that runs through all the books is the the Templar new, you know, far in advance of 1307 that they were going to one day be on the outs because of the wealth they had accumulated, because of the knowledge that maybe didn't fit the official uh, narrative of Christianity. Uh, and so they were looking for, a, an, a, an, a, they had an escape plan.
2: Right, this goes back, I think, to something called the Albigensian Crusade in the early parts of the 13th century. So maybe a hundred, about halfway through the, the, the Templar existence, 200 years of their order, uh, about halfway through, a 100 years into it, uh, in France, there was a group called the Cathars. And the Cathars, although they were Christian, were the wrong kinds of Christians. You know, we see it today, uh, recently in, in, in Ireland, with, you know, the Protestants and the uh, Catholics, um, the, the fighting that was going on there in the 80s and 70s. Uh, same kind of thing back in medieval times. Uh, it's really the first time in the history, in the world history, that a group of people were killed for their religious beliefs. It's really the first religious genocide. The Church came down and said, listen, Cathars, we need you to stop believing some of these uh, unorthodox Christian beliefs. And if you don't, we're going to have to wipe you out. And Cathars said, well, sorry, you know, we believe what we believe. And then the Church basically wiped them out. Hundreds of thousands of Christians were murdered uh, by the Church for being, again, the wrong kinds of Christians. what was called the Albigensian Crusade. Now, the Templars headquartered in France, and many of their uh, members were French noblemen, these were, these were compatriots, these were f- fellow Frenchmen. And so the Templars, uh, although not caught in the crossfire of that, I think saw the writing on the wall, and they said, if it can happen to the Templars, it can happen to us. And I think that's when they first started thinking about, we need to have an escape plan. If someday the Church turns on us for being the wrong kind of Christians, or maybe for other reasons, we need to have a safe haven need to have an escape plan. We need to have a place to go to create our own new Jerusalem, a place to secrete our treasures. And I think that, that's what segues into why people like Prince Henry Sinclair and other Templars and their descendants were crossing the Atlantic before Columbus, again, to look for safe haven in America. I think that's how that all ties together. But that was the motivation, I believe, for the Templars crossing the Atlantic, was to seek out a uh, a safe haven and and a, and a place to secrete their treasures,
1: which takes us to a rather unlikely location. Now, when I think of the treasure of the Catskills, I think of Grossinger's and some of the great com- comedy <laughs> clubs. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think of the Knights Templar, but there you go. There it is. Tell me more.
2: There, there's, there's a, there are many boar skull jokes someplace in there. <laughs> but yeah, one one of the things that 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 we've come across, research, fellow researchers, uh, and I have been—I've known about for a few years now—and I've been studying, and still can't quite decide what we want to do with—is something called uh, the Cremona document. It's a um, uh, Zena Halpern, who was a dear friend of mine and a fabulous researcher who passed away a couple of years ago. Wrote a book um, in the last year of her life, uh, talking largely about this. She appears some of your list. And they remember her and recognize her from appearing on the curse of Oak Island with the Regina brothers. But Zina uh, had come across and done a lot of research on this Cremona document. And what the document is, is a travel log from 1179 to 1180, in which uh, Templar Knight, according to this document, uh, came across, uh, went, went north up to the Scandinavian countries, and from there came across the North Atlantic, following the path of the Old Norse, you know, the, the Vikings and Leif Erikson, coming across the North Atlantic island, hopping their way across, and eventually ending up in, in Nova Scotia, and then down the coast, and finally, uh, in this particular journey, they ended up in the Catskill mountain area. And, and, the, and this Cremona document talks about how the, the, the Templars, uh, how they did this, that they were bringing with them some of the treasures they had uh, first found under the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem. 150, 160 years earlier, that some of these treasures uh, may have included things as controversial as the marriage contract between uh, Jesus and Mary Magdalene, which is obviously talking about radioactive, you mentioned earlier, that's incredibly radioactive, but that they came to the Catskills and, and there uh, found other um, like-minded uh, uh, not not just Native Americans, but other people who had come over even earlier essentially from Europe and, uh, and, and, and were given sort of safe haven there and, and again left a lot of their, their treasures and their artifacts with this group and so that's how the Catskills sort of tie in. Now we're not 100% certain this Cremona document is authentic. There are things about it that are incredibly captivating and that are um, that, that show a very deep level of specificity and detail that would be really hard to, to replicate, and yet we don't have the hard evidence, the smoking gun that conclusively proves its authenticity. And so, you know, lucky for me, I live in the world of, of writing fiction, so I can, I can sort of play with this stuff a little bit and, and, and hide behind that. Uh, other writers have looked at this more carefully, this, 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 this uh, possibility, of this journey, and come out with the conclusion that it is authentic. I'm not willing to go quite that far yet, but I think there's clearly a very strong possibility that it is authentic. I just can't conclusively say it yet. But this is what goes into my novel, The Treasure Templari, the possibility that the Templar treasure did end up in the Casco Mountain region.
1: Right, and and so uh, Cameron and Amanda are, I guess, hired by someone who has come into possession of this a uh, long lost coveted panel uh, from the right. Ghent altarpiece and it's the the panel you referred to the just judges, which is supposedly the map but this this character that has this uh, uh, panel doesn't really know history and so he gets Cameron and Amanda uh, to try and I guess decode it, decipher it and wow. uh, and, and and look for the uh, and uh, look for the the well, whether it's the 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 Holy Grail or uh, the arma Christi. I want to talk a little bit about the arma Christi because, and this now we're going to dial back to Hitler and Himmler. And Hitler, of course, was not religious. He was an occultist, but he he was just obsessed with the idea of possessing. The arma Christi, or some of the artifacts, I- explain what the arma Christi uh, were or are. Right. So,
2: yeah. So the arma Christi, it's, it's basically it's it's the things that that went into the uh, passion of the Christ. So you've got the the true cross, the spear of destiny, the crown of thorns. Those are the ones Hitler was particularly interested in. But it also includes things like the ladders and the. The the I, I, I think I'm missing some. There's four or five of them, and you see them oftentimes depicted in, in Christian um, paintings and artwork. But the things that Hitler was particularly interested in, he believed, for example, that the spirit of destiny could be weaponized uh, and would help him win World War II. And he believed, for example, that the crown of thorns could be adapted to perhaps give him immortality which obviously, if you're a if you're despot, what could be better than that? So he believed in the supernatural power of these items, even though he was used to, as you said, not a Christian, but he believed in their power. And so he wanted to recover these items because he believed he could weaponize them, use them for his own good.
1: More of my conversation with author Dave Brody when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Colleen Forgus is our Certified Nutritional Therapy Consultant and she manages the Full Script Dispensary at strangeplanet.ca. Welcome back Colleen, how are you? Great Richard, thank you. What are we going to talk about today?
2: Well, I thought we'd talk about allergies. Where I live in Arizona, allergies are pretty much a year-round thing. So I'm not sure about everyone in the rest of the country, but I wanted to talk about a product called Allergena. This is a homeopathic remedy, and the thing that I love about it is that it's tailored to different regions or zones throughout the country. So it's not a one size fits all. It's actually designed to work with the certain types of allergens wherever people are living. It's a drop that you just put under your tongue, and you can use it two or three times a day. Easy to take.
1: Sounds fantastic. And again, that's available at the full script dispensary. Just go to strangeplanet.ca, register, and don't forget all orders. You'll receive 10% off. We'll talk again next week, Colleen.
2: Thanks, Richard. Take
1: care. Full script, nature-grade, science-made. These products have not been assessed by the FDA and are not intended to treat, cure, or diagnose. If you have a medical concern, please consult your health care provider.
0: Reality. Richard is a very strong and handsome man. Just not in our reality. Although I heard somebody passing him in the hall the other day, and it was, uh, good, good a handsome man Richard is. I made that up. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
1: Dave Brody, the author of Treasure Templari, Templars, Nazis, and the Holy Grail, is here. Now, you mentioned the Spear of Destiny or the Spear of Longinus. This was the spear that a Roman centurion used to, to pierce the side of Christ as he hung on the cross to determine whether he was uh, dead or not. Now, um, I believe that—I could be wrong here, but I thought Hitler had actually seen the spear as a, as a young man living in Austria at one of the—was it the Schatzhammer, Schatzhammer Museum— um, maybe it was a copy of it. I'm not sure, but I know he was captivated you know, by it.
2: It's interesting. So it's it's one of those things. It's like the uh, like the True Cross. You know, there, there's probably eight or ten or, or twenty versions of the True Cross. You know, across uh, Europe and the Middle East. So no one's quite sure which one is which. And it's true with all the relics. But I I had never heard that story. But I'm not the least bit surprised by it, as you said. Hitler was uh, was very much into those kinds of uh, uh, beliefs and 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 even as a young as a young man apparently so that doesn't surprise me at all.
1: Right, and and again, you, one can well uh, understand why Hitler would want to possess the Spear of Destiny. I believe it had been used with by Charlemagne and and um, Constantine and all the great and uh, Napoleon uh, apparently all right. possessed the spear and took it into battle, and uh, it is said that whoever possessed it would be undefeated.
2: Right, and so, uh, you know, look, we, we, we get into trouble trying to get inside of Hitler's head, obviously. No one, no one really wants to spend any time there, but on, on top of everything else, this was one of the things he believed, and he was in a position, um, again, as early, this goes back to the, the, the first thing we talked about in, in, during, this, during this interview, our, our conversation, is that in 1934 already that just, that just Judges panel was stolen, and it potentially was stolen because Belgian nationalists feared that Hitler already had his eye on it even before the war began, and they didn't want him to get this, because they didn't want him to eventually recover the arm and so it was a preemptive strike to get rid of that panel right away before he could ever march in and take it.
1: There's a passage in the book you describe where, uh, and I, I don't know if this is actually a true or you're taking artistic license, but it was fascinating that Hitler had sent an agent into Belgium to find the, the, uh, the panel. And because this agent failed, rather than go back and face the wrath of Hitler, he committed suicide. Is that a true story?
2: That is true, yes. Yeah. So uh, even though I, you know, my books are fiction, I, I do when I talk about historical events, I try to make them as accurate as I can. So if there's stuff like that in in my books, those are true. Those are true facts. Yes. And so, uh, you know, you, you, you <laughs> when Hitler gave you a job. You, you did not do it because it, it, it just wasn't like that old um, Hogan's Hero. You know, send you to the Russian front. <laughs> <thing>. um, <laughs> you know, that's that, that's what happened in this particular case. Um, he did not succeed in finding the, the panel, and and uh, as you said, committed suicide because of it.
1: And and Himmler, he had a different interpretation uh, of the the map. He thought it led to something else entirely.
2: Right. Himmler, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Himmler was uh, was really obsessed with the old gods, the 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 old Norse gods, the, the pagans. The this goes back to, potentially back to all the way to Atlantis. And so he believed that this Just judge's panel indeed was a map and indeed led to a treasure. But in his mind, it led to maybe an opening to the underworld that would lead to the secrets of old Atlantis, the technology of old Atlantis. And again, he wanted to weaponize the Atlantis technology to win the war, just like Hitler did. He didn't think it had anything to do with Holy Grail, but he thought it all tied back to the ancient Atlantis legend and so that was his obsession with this panel. Um, you know, one panel apparently had uh, two. Both these guys were fighting, so almost was more over it. But um, Himmler was big picture. Himmler did not think that Christianity was a tough enough religion. All of this, turn your other cheek, love thy neighbor. No, no, no. He didn't like that. He wanted a more macho religion. He wanted the old, the old God and his hammer, and, and he thought that the old gods would be a better religious uh, umbrella for the Third Reich. And so he had he had most of his officers and his underlings uh, worshipping some of the old ways, the old gods, for example, dancing around the Maypole at wedding celebrations. And he sort of rejected Christianity because it was, in his mind, too weak, but he wanted to go back to the old gods, the old pagan uh, gods of the, of the Norse. And, and again, that ties back in many ways to Atlantis uh, and their technology.
1: The, the a pursuit of uh, the Arma Christi or Atlantean technology or whatever is that what led the German U boats to New Swabia in the Antarctic?
2: Yes. Um, there was a bunch of expeditions. They sent them up to the Antarctic, they sent them into the, the Alps. Uh, there was a whole team of uh, German scientists assigned to go out and look for both the Atlantean technology, or the Atlantean uh, uh, homeland and technology, and also the Holy Grail. Again, both Hitler and Himmler were were really uh, interested in these things. And so a a pretty expansive amount of uh, resources were expended on these scientists being sent out across the world, really, to try to find these missing artifacts and these missing treasures.
1: Now, uh, bringing it back to this, your fictionalized account in Treasure Templari, uh, there are, I mean, you, you um, invoke the, uh, the specter of white nationalists in the United States uh, there's one character in particular who I, I believe is in the biomedical field uh, yep. who is enamored with Hitler and had sort of stumbled on to, um, you know, you mentioned the, the fountain of youth. Hitler thought the, the arma Christi, you know, could lead to his own immortality. And so he could reign over the Third Reich for a thousand years. Uh, so just sort of connect the dots there. This This character... Uh, who had studied the the um, the uh, the abbess um, uh, whose name escapes me, uh, Binion, um who also you know dabbled in in herbalism and and and. Uh, oh, oh, uh, no, Hildegard.
2: Hildegard. 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 Yes. Yes. Hildegard did Hildegard. What a fascinating character! And so she, uh, as you said, was an, an abbess, and I believe it was. Uh, mid 1100s, mid 12th century, a German. Uh, she was an orphan who eventually ended up in, in a monastery and, and, and started studying, um, you know, uh, plants and herbal medications and stuff, and became in addition. Was very spiritual and, and a musician and whatnot. But became an abbess. But she she did an amazing uh, amount of work in figuring out and, and deciphering some of the old deciphering some of the old Arab texts involving uh, basically medicine, using, using herbs and plants uh, to heal. And she became incredibly well-known and, 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 and popular, and, and there was a bit of anti-feminine uh, you know, discrimination going on. Of course, the Church was very patriarchal back then, but she overcame that. But, but she was really a, a very fascinating feminine um, role model uh, in medieval times, in, during a time when the Church had very few of them. But this neo-Nazi that you mentioned, this character in my book, her name is Katharina. She's named after the German figure skater, East German figure skater Katharina Witt uh, in my book. But because she was a feminine woman, you know, female, she identified with Hildegard, who was also a scientist. And, and, uh, and that was sort of her role model. But Hildegard um, character in history is fascinating. In fact, that journal I mentioned, the Pomona document, where the Templars went across, to the Catskills in 1179 and 1180, one of the things that the journals talk about was how the, some of the items that they found in Jerusalem uh, earlier that they brought back to Europe, that in the mid-1100s they brought those items to Hildegard and asked Hildegard if she could help interpret some of them. Hmm. Some of them were navigational devices. But even even in that in that Cremona document, uh, and this is why I mentioned there are things in there that are really obscure, that makes it hard to believe it it's it's a hoax of any kind. But one of the fascinating references is they decide to send queries to Hildegard to ask for advice on oh, translating some of these things and some of these things. But uh, she was a fascinating uh medieval figure at a time when very few very few women rose to a, a level of prominence in the church.
1: So the idea here now is that there are all these uh, various various groups that are in hot pursuit of the um, uh, the treasure, the, the the treasure templari, and uh, that would include uh, various neo nazis who are hoping, again, I, I guess, to to use uh, these artifacts to resurrect the uh, the Third Reich, bring about a Fourth Reich, if you will.
2: Right. The, the, the neo nazis believe there's some kind of technology, the technology of, of Atlantis. I um, won't we'll get too deep into the science, but really what it is, what they believe it is, is the ability to turn uh, seawater into uh, a, a fuel source. Imagine, you know, if, if, you could, if you could literally burn seawater as a fuel source, um, you know, how, 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 how that would change things, how that would change the balance of power in the world. Obviously, it would, it would, it would um, take away a lot of the power and wealth from the, the OPEC countries. Um, so they believe that one of the possibilities... Uh, is, is, to, is to harness seawater as a source of power. So they want to do that because they believe that will help bring about the Third Reich, that will bring about um, you know, like a white supremacy again. So they're after this treasure map because that's what they believe it leads. There are other groups who believe otherwise, but um, everyone's trying to find this painting because each of them believes it will take them to a treasure. They don't agree with what the treasure is, uh, but they're all sort of after this. And uh, you know what can go wrong? <laughs> you got a bunch of people looking for a treasure map that leads to the Holy Grail, the Templar treasure, or the Atlantis treasure, or whatever. So it's a bit of a free for all, and that's that's really the roller coaster ride part of the it of,
1: is. The, it's the, it, the it's, it's a wild ride. Treasure Templari. Just you know, the overarching theme here, not only of this book but the series, the idea of of the Templars in America. Uh, I mean, they could have. They could have hid their treasure in the Himalayas. They could have. They could have. Uh, I don't know. Gone to the Gobi Desert, Africa, perhaps. Do you? Why do you think they chose North America? And and did they imagine that perhaps the New World could be, uh, you know, the New Jerusalem?
2: Right. So first off, they they need to go someplace where others don't know how to get there. So. You know, so right away, America, you know, we know that the Norse had come over in the early parts of the 11th century. So people did know how to come, but they weren't coming regularly. So that was part of it. Part of it, I think, when they did come, they, they found natural allies and compatriots in the Native Americans. Uh, you know, when, when the Pilgrims came later, when the English came later, when the Spanish came later, um, they, they, they didn't treat the Native Americans with any kind of decency or respect. But I think when the Templars came over, they did and so therefore they built an alliance and so you know if you're going to leave your treasure someplace for safekeeping you you want to have people there to, to help safeguard it or to be good custodians of it so i think there was a an alliance that was formed between the templars and the native americans uh, um so the combination of those two one being a, a place that not many people knew about or knew how to get to uh, and, yeah let's we'll talk about the getting there because the templars had a, a fleet uh of, of and 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 navigational skills and very few groups during medieval times, possessed so just the, the sheer distance of it made it uh, a natural hiding spot. And then, of course, secondly, the fact that they had allies in, in the Native Americans here, so it did make it a, a natural spot. And then, the second part of your question about it being a new Jerusalem, yes, I, I do think that. I think that I think they believe that, and I think we saw that. We see that carried through all the way, all the way through the Templars into the Freemasons, who sort of inherited many of the Templar traditions and. Many of the Templar teachings, and and that carries through up to the founding fathers, who of course many of many of whom were of course Freemasons themselves, and so this idea that you know the Templars had of a, of a new Jerusalem of a of, of a land where individual rights and liberties and separation of church and state would be paramount. you know, That we sort of see that that, that line that uh, that continued on. Stretching out over the centuries until we end up with the American Revolution, uh, you know, five hundred years later.
1: And and so, w- was the treasure then left in the New World uh, in order to to finance the creation of this this new experiment?
2: Interesting question. one of the possibilities, one of the things that, uh, again, researchers, including myself, are looking at is evidence that the treasure you which know, Talked about the curse of Oak Island, the treasure that ended up someplace along the eastern seaboard, whether it was Nova Scotia, Oak Island, or, or the Catskills, or Newport, Rhode Island, or wherever it may have been. There are interesting writings that talk about how that treasure was recovered in 1774, 1775, 1776, and was used uh, to fund the American Revolution. And I, I can't prove that, but that, you know that's one of those things that we're still looking at. But that that's one of those stories that sort of makes you sort of nod your head and say, yeah, that makes sense. That would make sense if that's what the treasure was eventually used for, that those those blocks connect in a way that's pleasing to the eye. doesn't mean it's true, but it, it sort of holds together. The story
1: holds together. Well, in the meantime, people uh, can now avail themselves of treasure templari, Templars, Nazis, and the Holy Grail, and uh, where do folks get a copy, Dave?
2: Right, so it's, it's on Amazon, it's also on Kindle. Um, I try to make them affordable, it's fourteen ninety five for the paper version, it's uh, $4 and change for the Kindle version. You know, This is my passion, so I want people to, to go out and be able to afford it, to have some fun with it. History is fun, read about this stuff. Um, you know, There's nine books in the series, I think those people who like this stuff tend to go through all nine. If you don't like it, you probably won't want any of them, that's fine too. But uh, to me, this is a fascinating look into a part of history. That we're not taught in school. And uh, it, again, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. It's been 15 years I've been writing these novels, and I, I can't seem to get enough of it.
1: And the, and the great thing is, it's a standalone. You don't need to start with book number one, right?
2: Exactly, exactly. Jump in any place you want. They are the same. You know, characters continue, but the stories themselves are standalone, as you said.
1: Well, I'll let you get back to writing uh, book number 10.
2: <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate being on, Richard. It's always great. You're such a Fascinating uh, person to talk to and, and a very thorough researcher. So I do appreciate you having me
1: on. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back with a few words about the next episode of Conspiracy Unlimited. If you haven't visited my strange planet shop, what's the holdup? Just have a peek at some of these amazing, unique designs created exclusively for Strange Planet by Atomic Werewolf Studios in Arizona. A new batch of great t-shirts just arrived, including one for the uh, politically incorrect crowd, shall we say, and I'm one. It's called the Toxic Mail t-shirt, and those of you concerned about protecting America's electrical grid from an EMP attack, well, there's one there for you, too. Just go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the Strange Planet Shop button at the bottom of the page. Check it out. Have fun. Get your Christmas shopping done early and help support my work. The Strange Planet Shop at strangeplanet.ca Coming up next time on a special bonus episode, another installment of Thursdays with Ronnie. Is Tulsi Gabbard a Russian asset? Until then, I'm Richard Serrett.